So the question is, the question on the table today at Kabbalah and Coffee is, what is joy? Not what is, not really what is joy, but what, what is it that brings about joy? What brings about joy? Um, and there, there can, many factors can be said to bring about joy. So let's, let's actually discuss joy. What brings, what, what makes you happy? Good morning. What uh, what makes us happy? Let's get some let's get some thoughts. Let's get some ideas. Connections. Connections good. Good good. You've talked about being like in flow when you're sort of deeply into what you're reading, doing, thinking, conversing about, and time. Everything else goes away. That's joy. I want to. Fo- I'm going to. Fo- I'm going to come back to that because that's a great. That's a great idea. But I want to. But let's 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 give some other. Let's give some other. Maybe. What what other things bring us joy? My what? nephews. Okay. Good. Good. Not my other family, but my nephews. <laughs> Specifically the nephews. Okay. Good. What else? What brings us joy? We had an interesting situation last week. I don't, I don't remember which day it was. Early last week, where there's a tree near our house, and there were there were like hundreds of birds in the trees. I saw. I had that in my neighborhood too. When? Like last week? Yeah. No, and they were they were so loud. It was in the morning. It was seven o'clock in the morning. Yes, I think so. Could be. It was so loud. It was like shrieking, like concerned, like what was going on. Opened up the back door over there and looked outside, looked a little bit down the block, and there were all these birds in the tree, just, I don't know, davening, whatever they were doing. <laughs> they were just singing, singing the praises, I don't know, singing hallow, whatever it was. It's, oh, oh really? <laughs> They're casting for it. These are the auditions. All right, so, good morning. Um, <coughs> so birds okay what else Does anybody like a mystery novel what is it about a mystery novel that, that, that is enjoyable surprise hey good the unknown the unknown good oh I like that figuring things out the way I want to and this is really the way I want to focus the conversation it's hard to you know Sometimes I ask the right questions, sometimes not. But hopefully we get we get to at least direction. The idea of figuring things out is akin to the idea of resolving tension, right? That's what figuring things out is. Is that there's a question we don't know, like who did it, and then you know the whole the mystery is about figuring out what happened, who did it, where they were, you know, like. All the details. So there's a certain resolution of the tension that is thrilling, that is that is joy, that is that that, that brings joy, that brings happiness, that brings pleasure to a person. So I'll tell you a statement. I'll share with you a statement from the Talmud. The Talmud says as follows: Ein simcha kehataras sefekos. There is no simcha, there's no joy 
like the Hatoras, Hatoras means like the untying or the removing of suffix. What is suffix? Doubt. There's no greater joy than the resolution of doubt. What does that mean? What does that mean? We know how it feels when we're confused. We know how we feel when we don't know how many things don't we know. We, know, we don't know. We know that we don't know so many things, right? We don't know when we're younger, we don't know where we should go to school or what we should major in or what career we should get into or who we should marry or where we should live or what, you know, how many, whatever. All of the different questions in life, this, that, the other, all of these doubts and questions and things that, that, that weigh heavily upon us. Not small questions like, okay, should I wear, you know, red or black, but like serious questions. Not that that can't be a serious question. I don't it's a serious question also. But questions like questions that really weigh heavily upon us. And the Talmud says, Ain Simcha, there's no greater joy than the resolution of Suffolk, than the resolution of the concern, the worry. But Suffolk really means doubt. There's no greater joy. So on a very mundane level, on a very simple level, and it's, you know, I apologize for using this example, but this is just an example that came to mind. Is you have a, a whodunit, whether it's a whether it's a movie, whether it's a book, whether it's whatever, it doesn't matter what it is. But you have a mystery, you have a question of, you know, uh, some sort of mysterious question, and the process of the book or of the movie or whatever it is to try to figure it out. That process is one that elicits joy because the process is all about removing doubt, removing suffix. Make sense? Yeah, we have the ultimate one right now with the airliner. Missing airliner. Yeah. And every day, crazy. What's the, I don't even know what the latest is. What are they? Are they still suspecting foul play? Are they still not sure? Really? I don't. Interesting. I don't know. But, but, but I think it's, it's, really, it's really bizarre. Now, now, most of us are riveted on a human level, not necessarily because, not necessarily because we feel for the people, etc., but because you know, we like a mystery and whatever. That's part of human nature, but we're curious. And the resolution, the bottom line is that joy and pleasure is born, and in many different areas in life, is born of the resolution of tension. This is the way it works in life. Resolution of tension. Think about, think about a good joke. A good joke is there's a good build-up. Right? Or a riddle, there's a good build-up. And then you resolve it. Ah, feels good. Think about the pleasure that we get in academia. Figuring, right? Figuring something out. It's like you're, you're a scientist and you're, figure, you're, you're trying to get to the bottom of uh, some of life's greatest mysteries. So you work and work and work. And what's the point? The point is to unravel something that, that, that heretofore, something that up until now has been shrouded in mystery. What's, and that's pleasurable. Why is that pleasurable? Because, again, undoing, untying, shedding the suffix, shedding the doubt and getting to a place of clarity. In other words, getting to a solution from a place of no solution is a profoundly pleasurable and enjoyable experience. That's the pleasure that exists within intellectual discovery. That's the pleasure that, ex- that explorers, think about explorers, straight up, you know, uh, whether you're trying to climb a, 
any challenge in life, there's, you could say that any challenge that you accomplish is the sa- the pleasure born of that can be the same can be understood along the same lines. Why? Because until you do it, there's a suffix, there's a doubt whether or not you can do it. When you do it, suddenly that doubt, that self doubt, or the disproving the doubt of others, that is resolved. And again, the Talmud says. By the way, the Talmud doesn't say this is the only type of joy. There's also joy from seeing beautiful things and birds and sunsets. And there's, there's beautiful joy. Although I was thinking also this morning that the birth of a child is also, can also be understood a little bit along these lines. You know, nine months is a mystery. Although today with the 3D pictures and images and whatever, you know, there's a lot, I guess it's a lot less of a mystery before birth than it used to be. But you still, you still can't write. There's still an element of of suffolk. Well, who knows? You can't, you know, you can't rule anything out. But but even the birds or singing the sunrise, that's it. Might be, is it going to rise again, or am I going to be alive when it rises? That's true. Oh, so there is good. Good. So, so I want to clarify. One second. I want to clarify. The Talmud doesn't say the only joy is resolving doubt. And again, resolving doubt, don't think of it just as one narrow thing. My point is really to broaden it to really, in my opinion, many, many different areas. Resolving tension is... I mean, think of how good it feels like when you see something out of place and you fix it. You, oh, like you... A picture and you straighten it out, right? What is it? Like your result? It's resolution to something that's tension. Think about it. It's like that thing is stressing you out. Oh, the picture's crooked. Oh, it's not right. I gotta fix it. Hold on. Uh, all right, I feel so much better. The Talmud doesn't say it's the only joy, but it says there's no joy like it. There's no joy like it because it hits a really deep place, money. So what you're saying is, is absolutely accurate. Is that, and that is, like as Marnin said, that there is a commandment to serve God with joy, which means that it can't be, joy cannot be a product of circumstance, because otherwise you could say, I can't do the mitzvah, because the circumstances didn't line up. So when the Torah says you've got to serve God with joy, what, that, what that's telling us is that joy is coming from a deeper place within. It's really a perspective and an attitude. But notwithstanding that, and I don't, you know, the question is how to reconcile exactly this idea. I'm sure... Sh- I'm sure we can figure it out. But what we're saying here is, in the, in the context of circumstances, of how life plays out, you know, there are certain things that evoke within us the experience, and maybe one is happiness and one is joy, or one is satisfaction. Maybe there's different, you know, different terminology that can be used, but there is definitely some sort of 
pleasure, happiness, etc., that is born of the circumstance of something that was previously unclear becoming clear, something that was previously a point of tension becoming resolved. Tension, resolution, I mean, that's... Think about, really, the heartbeat. It's really breath, the same thing. It's constriction and then expansion. The idea of tension and resolution. This is the stuff, this is the, this is the very life, the, the, the beat of life. Right, right. True. That's why many, many Jewish texts are written in a way of questions and answers. It's like even the Talmud, the Babylon. We study the Babylonian Talmud. I, don't know, I think we've talked about this before. There's two versions of the Talmud. There's called Talmud Yerushalmi and Talmud Bavli. There's the Yerushalmi, like Yerushalayim, Jerusalem. There's the Jerusalem Talmud and the Babylonian Talmud, and they were authored roughly in the same era. The third and third century, if you will, uh, of the common era, and they some of the same sages appear in both, but the style of writing and the style of exposition is vastly different. The Jerusalem Talmud discusses cases and puts out the law straight up. It says, "Okay, here's the case, here's the law, here's the opinion. This is what you should do." Done. The Babylonian Talmud is completely different. It's all about questions and answers. The Babylonian Talmud will, will cite a statement from, a, from an earlier source, from a Mishnaic source, and say, okay, so what's the case? Is it this, or is it that? If you tell me it's this, then I have this question. If you tell me it's that, I have these two questions. Then I'll bring a rabbi. Rabbi, this says that. How can you say that if the other rabbi said that, and the last time you said that? And then the whole thing is like that. And if I'm being vague, it's because I'm just giving you the general structure. But whatever page you turn to the Talmud, you'll typically find that type of situation. And then you'll find questions that have no answer and answers that have no question. It's, it's, and proofs that have a disproof. And one rabbi says, here's the answer. And the other rabbi says, what kind of answer is that? And the other guy says, what kind of question is that on the answer? And you, by, by the time you're done, you don't even remember which layer you're up to. Are you, okay, now you have an answer, but now are you back to the question? Or is that actually an answer? Because you're not sure, wh- you're with me so far? All right, that's the point. That's the point. You're not sure which, at which level, when you have the resolution, wait, are we now good? Or now we good because we now have a question, like what's the good over here? But the point is that the Talmud is all about tension and resolution, building the tension and then resolving it. And many, many Jewish works follow in the same style where you'll cite a verse from the Torah, you'll ask a question. It's not... See, Rashi... Rashi, the most fundamental, the most basic commentator on the, on the Torah, he doesn't ask questions. He just gives the explanation. And there are books on Rashi explaining what Rashi is asking, even though he's not asking a question. Because the premise is that if there was no question, Rashi wouldn't have commented. Every comment of Rashi is only because, from a very simple level of learning the text, it evokes a question. And therefore, he, addre- he answers the question in very concise terminology, very clear terminology. But again, if you don't know the question, then you don't realize the depth. In other words, as Jan is saying, I think, if you don't have the tension, 
then the resolution is not a resolution. If the tension is not a tension, then the resolution is not a... Then it just seems like a comment. Rashi has a comment. All right. Why did he comment? I don't know. He had to fill up the page. But it's a resolution to attention. So you have many, actually there's, there's more than one book that's uh, even in English today. You have books called What's Bothering Rashi? I think it's actually called What's Bothering Rashi? And the whole book is about what questions, is, what, what questions um, are, is Rashi answering when, he, uh, when he's writing his commentary on any given verse. Anyway, so tension and resolution. It's a it's how we engage children. It's how we engage children at the Seder on Passover. The child asks four questions. You want you want the child to feel the tension, to feel the resolution. Because if you just tell tell the child you're free, the child will take that for granted or take that uh, okay, I'm free. I don't know anything else. You got to create the tension. Avadamayinu, we were slaves. It wasn't always like this. You build the tension, and now the resolution is a resolution. You can't have a resolution without the tension. And tension and resolution together create a, a, a profound type of simcha, a profound type of joy, or what was the word that you used? Satisfaction, appreciation, whatever, whatever it is, it's a, it's, it's a good feeling that's born of this process of tension and resolution. I'll ask you, so what's wrong with that? <laughs> no, I'm, I answered her question with a question. And I plan on, right, exactly, I wasn't it. What's, what's wrong? See, here's the thing. Judaism also believes, alongside this, that not every tension needs a resolution. Or not every question has a good resolution. Like pain and suffering. Even though that's not today's topic. There's no good resolution for this, for, for pain and suffering. Or an ultimate one. I don't know if it's good, but there's no ultimate resolution. We've discussed many times, and Moses asked how to God, how do you become pure from the impurity of death? God doesn't answer. They even brought the, brought the original Midrash, and, and Moses' face turns, turns colors. And only later on did he tell him about the red heifer, about the ashes and the water mixing it together. The concept that from the strafa, from the burning, from the destruction, from the ashes, you got to mix it in with water, with life again. Not, not resolving it, but bottom line, what has to be done after. But after time. There's no response. God doesn't respond. How do you purify from death? God doesn't answer Moses. It's only later, I don't know how many months later, that God tells him about the red heifer. This is not an answer but it's a response, and there's a difference. I don't know if it's a resolution, but it's a response. So there are certain things, I think, Jan, what you're saying is accurate. I think there are certain questions that don't get answered, and certain tensions that we don't get to be satisfied with. We don't get, the, we don't, we don't, let's put it this way, we don't deserve to, be, to have that satisfaction of resolving that tension. It's not something that we should... Uh, you with me? What I mean, you don't deserve it. What I mean is, it's not. It's not right to feel the satisfaction, the joy that's born of resolving tension for some sort of some tensions. For example, the Holocaust. 
To explain the Holocaust is to try to tie it up, to give an explanation. We've discussed many times. Try to give it an explanation. So that, I attention, I don't understand. Now I understand. What I'm saying is we don't, we don't deserve. That's maybe, it's, I don't, I don't, I don't want that statement of we don't deserve to come across the wrong way. I'm not blaming, it's not therefore because we did something wrong. What I'm saying is like this, that we shouldn't expect, we shouldn't even want to come to a good place with the Holocaust. You're, you're with me? No, so that's another thing. So the Alter Mentanya in chapter 26 and 27, uh, 26, so as we discussed, Tanya, the Alter is not really giving a resolution. It's more along the lines of a response. What do I need to do? What do I need to do is, I, I need to, at the end of the day, I need to move forward. That's the, healthy, that's the healthy approach. But to resolve the tension, is that going to resolve the tension? Is that going to answer the question? In my opinion, hopefully not. Hopefully we're always stuck with the question. That makes us, hu- that makes us a human being. That pain bothers us. It's, I always go back to this, to, this, to this question and answer that I heard in, in the name of uh, Elie Wiesel, that he was, once, he was once giving a lecture, speaking to high school students, and a high school student asked him, how could God allow the Holocaust to happen? And he thundered back and he said, if I gave you an answer, would it let you sleep better at night? It's like, why do you want an answer? You want it because we all want resolution, we all want to resolve our tensions, because that makes us feel better. But maybe we shouldn't want to feel better about certain things. Maybe it's not a good thing to feel good, to feel better about certain things. Yeah. Yeah. When, when, yeah, when the ultimate, the ultimate answer, as we, as Jews have always said for thousands of years, the ultimate answer is Mashiach. Mashiach comes, then we'll have all the answers. But until now, we, I mean, until then. We can't, uh, we can't, and the Rebbe said many times that those that try to explain the Holocaust, and even, even, even great rabbis in Israel that were saying uh, not so long ago, even till today, some says, that, you know, it's because of certain things. Hey, Delaney, I think you guys are... I know, I'm just to Okay, perfect. So, you know, that people are saying, oh, it's because... People are doing. People did this and that and the other, and, th- and that's why it. The concept of coming up with a reason to explain it is again, it's the human condition is not to want to be stuck in the tension. Is to want to find resolutions, to want to find an answer, to want to get that joy, that satisfaction. I don't know if you can call it joy, but that 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 good feeling of of not having the question. So all of this I'm saying in response to what you're saying, which I think is a very wise statement, and that is that there are certain certain questions, certain tensions that we may not have the answer to. Or that we might not have the answer to. <coughs> or, yeah, 100%. And certain ones that we, we, we don't want to have answered, certain ones that we shouldn't want to have answered, certain ones that we can't have answered, even if we heard the answer, we wouldn't understand the answer. So there are many different layers to this, but at the end of the day, the Talmud does say that Ein Simcha Katar there is no joy quite like the joy of resolving tension, of answering, uh, of explaining away something that's bothering us. And the way I want to bring it back to our discussion as we, as we begin with chapter 8 on page 58, in the, in the context of our discussion about living life from a deeper place, what that means, part of what that means, and I think Nina was alluding to this before, is... Sometimes, 
our the deepest part of ourselves doesn't manifest itself, doesn't express itself in our day-to-day life. In other words, there's a certain inconsistency or a certain uh, breach that exists between the inside and the outside. And I'm not talking about the inside, how we feel and what we do. That's still too shallow. When I say inside and outside, I mean the deepest part of us inside. The part of goodness and godliness and the altruistic part of ourselves, the giving part of ourselves, the part of us that's not the part of the deepest part of ourselves that's really not about ourselves. As it's known, I've talked about this many times, Kabbalah explains that the deepest part of you is the part that's least you. The part of you that's the most you, specifically individualistically you, is not the deepest you. Huh? It's a persona. That's right. It's already a name. It's already... It's, a, it's, a na- it's your name. It's your identity. That's already a limitation. That's already a definition. The purest part of the soul is the Yechida. Is the, it's, the, it's the part that's only termed as oneness. It's the part that's absolutely one with God. And that part that's one with God is not, in a sense... It's... It's hard to say this. I mean, it's not. I don't know if it's hard to say this, but it's not particular to you. The part of you that's one with God. I, I don't want to get like all super universal here, but it is. It is a little bit more universal than particular. It's less about you and more about God. So it's really the part of you that's willing to extend beyond yourself. Not willing. That only wants to extend beyond yourself. It's the part of you... You know, we all have this. We wake up in the morning some days and you think to yourself... Maybe. Hopefully. We think to ourselves, like, okay, what can I do for somebody else today? And, and you know what? I, I, don't, I don't care about myself today. I really don't care. I'm going to do something for somebody else. I'm not even going to think about myself. Or maybe we don't wake up doing this. But maybe some days it, it, the life or others call... Up, call this call upon us or call this forth from us. And that is this idea of I'm, I can't think about myself now. I'm not thinking about myself now. It's, it's all about either somebody else, family, a friend, a God, whatever. It's about, about something bigger than myself. And then there are moments in which we think about ourselves. So the, the idea of Yechida, the quintessence of the soul, the absolute quintessence of the soul is getting in touch with a part of you that's beyond you. But living from that space, which means like this, as we've said in the, in the previous lessons, the previous sessions of, of this text, that there's one thing to get in touch with it, which is to know that you have, it. you have this deep part of yourself. There's another way of getting in touch with it, where it's not just that you know you have it, but that you're actually living from this place. So that you're actually putting into practice and acting in a way that is consistent with the deepest part of who you are. So not only do you know that you have this, this essence, this quintessence, this yechida, but you're actually living from this place. And therefore, everything that you do is different. So in your relationships, your relationship with your family, with your kids, is going to be so profoundly different. And the way you can tell if somebody is living from that deep place is how they're actually acting on, a very, on, on, on the most external level. Now, here's the deal. We explained in previous sessions the benefits, quote-unquote, of living in such a way. Number one, you're living much deeper. 
you're living from a deeper place. Number two, there's more consistency. It's more authentic. It's what, what happens is that any struggles along the way, when you live in, in such a way, any struggles or challenges in the middle disappear because you're living from such a deep place. So any questions that you have, God forbid, God forbid a loved one gets, uh, gets sick or is not, is not well, etc. So even though you had a tension yesterday about who was going to take out the garbage, but today you're not even thinking about that. Why? Because there's something much deeper here. There's something much deeper, and therefore, the way it expresses itself on a day-to-day is that it knocks out all the other stuff. So, we said there are many, many advantages of living from a deeper place. It's not easy to get there, but there are many advantages. But the one that I want to highlight today is the concept of joy. This also brings satisfaction in living. Because what it means is that you're no longer s- stuck in, in a place and living in a way that's inconsistent with who you truly are on the deepest levels. In other words, if, you, if, if we are living... If we're living not only with our core, but from our core, to the point that everything that we do is informed by the deepest part of who we are, then that is a life that's lived with joy and satisfaction. Again, what is the joy and satisfaction? What, what is the, the precise element of joy and satisfaction there? It's the joy and satisfaction of resolving the tension. Because otherwise, when I live life not that way, so in, the, in my heart of hearts, I love my family. But in my behavior, I'm telling everyone to wait while I do other things that are not so important. Which means that there's an inconsistency there in my experience within. On the deepest of levels, I want to be doing for them. On a practical level, I'm not doing for them. So now that's, there's, t- there's tension there. What is the joy? The joy is when I resolve the tension. The joy is when... I'm living in a way that's seamless. Does this make sense? With this in mind, we can now enter chapter 8 and talk about the connection between Hanukkah and the holiday of Sukkot. And before we read the text, I have to remind remind everyone, and myself included, what we discussed in chapter 1 of this uh, this wonderful text, of this wonderful book. Chapter 1 we cited a Talmudic debate. Talmudic debate between the Academy of Shammai and the Academy of Hillel. The two great Jewish academies, Torah academies, dating back 1700 years, 1800 years, no longer. Hillel and Shammai, Mishnaic times. 18, let's just call it 1800 years ago. And the debate is about how to light the Chanukiah, how to light the Hanukkah menorah. How to observe the holiday, the festival of lights. Beit Shammai, the Academy of Shammai says, the first night of Hanukkah, you take your candelabra with eight flames and you light all eight. The second night you light seven. The third night you light six. And then five, four, three, two, one. You light the menorah in descending, descending order. The Academy of, of Hillel says that you light it opposite, you light it in ascending order. The first night you light one candle, the second night you light two, and three, four, and five, and six, seven, eight. In practice, we all know how do we light the menorah? Who do we follow? Hillel, the Academy of Hillel. We go up, we don't go down. But the Talmud is not content with just citing a dispute. The Talmud asks the question what's the reason for the dispute? 
if they have a difference of opinion, it's got to be based on something. They could, it wasn't just, I'm sure they... Certainly they didn't just flip a coin and say, okay, you're going up, I'm going down. Like, you know. What's the reason? So the Talmud explains. The Talmud actually gives two reasons. <coughs> but we're going to focus on one. The Talmud says that the reason of the Academy of Hillel, of Shammai, is because we follow the pattern of the bulls of Sukkot. The bulls of Sukkot. These were offerings that were brought on the festival of Sukkot, which is called, what is Sukkot? The Harvest Festival? What is Sukkot in English? The Boost, the Tabernacle Festival, I don't know, something. Feast of the Tabernacles. I don't know, it's easier to call it Sukkot, in my opinion. It's when we build the huts outside and we shake the lulav and the estrog, and, you know, that's what it's all about. Do the hokey pokey. So. You have the holiday of Sukkot, and on the holiday of Sukkot, the Torah tells us that you offer bulls. It's a bull offering. The first day is 14, then 13, then 12, 11, 10, 9, 8, 7. These, these are the offerings that you bring. So you offer the bulls every day, a certain number, but the numbers go down every single day. The Talmud says that's the reason behind the Academy of Shammai saying that you like the Chanukiah, you like the menorah also descending order, because we pattern it after the bulls of Sukkot. Just like they descend, we descend lighting the menorah for Hanukkah. Says the Academy of Hillel, that's very nice, but we have another principle that we believe overrides this, this precedent, and that is that you always ascend when it comes to matters of holiness, and you don't descend. You always go up and you don't go down. So how do we explain the bulls of Sukkot? We'll leave that for now. That's a biblical mitzvah, so you can't change that. But a rabbinic commandment, a rabbinic holiday, like, like Hanukkah, it's not in the Torah, it happened years after, a thousand years after the Torah was given. So the story, the observance, if you will, of Hanukkah, we have to do an ascending order and not descending order because when it comes to, to good things, we always want to be on the upswing and not, God forbid, on the downswing. Make sense? Chapter 1, he said, what do we see from this? That Hillel's opposition to Shammai is actually not that they disagree with the proof. They just have an overriding principle, which means that in principle, in a sense, there is a valid correlation between Hanukkah and Sukkot. Between Hanukkah and the bulls of Sukkot. And the question we asked in chapter 1 is, what is the connection? How does Shammai draw a parallel between, well, on Sukkot, we offer the bulls in descending order, so Hanukkah should also be the same. Why make that connection? What does Hanukkah have to do with Sukkot? Two different holidays. What does lighting the menorah have to do with the bulls of Sukkot? Also seemingly different different, uh, tasks, different mitzvot. One is lighting a menorah, one is... One is offering a bull. What does one have to do with the other? And then we gave the simple answer. Well, the simple answer is that they're both eight-day holidays. They're both eight-day holidays. In fact, Sukkot is the only eight-day holiday in the Torah. Passover is seven days. There are not that many biblical holidays. You have the high holidays, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur. It's one day. Rosh Hashanah is two days, but whatever. It's not... Then you have Passover is seven days. Shavuot is one day or two days if you're in the diaspora. Only Sukkot is eight days. So 
the simple explanation, why does Shammai parallel, why did he say that when they established Hanukkah, they modeled it after Sukkot, and therefore went into Sukkot, because they're both eight-day holidays. But then we asked in chapter 1, at the end of chapter 1, but why are they eight-day holidays? Don't tell me because they're eight days, therefore there's a connection. Looking deeper, looking more mystically, why are they both eight-day holidays? What is it about both holidays that is reflected in the number eight? So thus far, before we begin, ironically enough, chapter 8, we've already explained the connection between Hanukkah and the number 8. What's the connection? What does the number 8 represent? Ah, the super rational. We explained that the 8 represents... 7 is like... 7 is in the box. 7 is the structure. 7 is logic. And what's the 8? The 8 is... The essence. The eight is the deeper. The eight is the infinite. The eight is the beyond. So what's the beyond? What does it mean for us? It means, again, either I'm, either I'm attacking the challenge of the relationship or whatever it is from a logical place, in which case I'm, I'm inevitably flawed and, and, and possibly doomed to make changes. We've discussed the last few weeks where change comes from. If I'm making change from a logical place, likely it's not going to work. But if I make change, if the change comes from a much deeper place, an essential place, it's much more likely to take effect. That is the place of eight. So now we explain the connection between Hanukkah lamps and the bulls of Sukkot and Sukkot itself, which are both eight-day holidays. Let's read it inside. And it harkens back to a conversation we had outside in the Sukkah six months ago. Take it away, David, please. Um, one and seven, the concept of Sukkot. Oh, no, no, so start from uh, where is this base? Oh, sorry, sorry. Based page, on... sorry, page 58, chapter 8, right at the top. Based on all the above, we can understand the comparison of the Hanukkah lamps to Sukkot and the bulls of Sukkot. One and seven, the concept of Sukkot and the concept of the bulls of Sukkot is the revelation of the Makkifim. Yeah. Much like the actual Sukkot, which surrounds the Now we got to explain what Makkifim are. Makkifim refer to encompassing light. The encompassing lights or encompassing energy. What is the difference? What, is, what, is, what does it mean that it's encompassing? Well, encompassing means that it's too big to be contained. It's too big to fit into the, the, the vessel of the recipient. To give a simple example, you have, when it comes to liquid and a cup, so I have tea, there's a certain amount of tea that can fit in this cup. But what if the tea is just too much? It's not going to go inside the cup. It's going to spill outside the cup. It's going to encompass it from the outside. It's going to spill over the edges. Now what if it's not just too much quantity of tea? But what if it's qualitatively greater than the vessel can contain? So in that case, it doesn't at all. It's not like some of it fits in, some of it spills out. None of it can actually fit in the container. To cite a simple example, when it comes to teaching, so you can have a teacher that teaches on the level of the students, but is just giving too much information, so that the students can only take the first half hour, and anything after that is just extraneous, and it's like the, too much liquid, it's just spilling over the edges, and it's not going to be retained or remembered. But then you have, an, that's one challenge. Another challenge is, sometimes you have a teacher that's speaking over here, and the students are over here. So before you... Before long, you start to realize that the students, it's not like there's too much information. The, the information is on a much greater level or much uh, too abstract for the students to actually comprehend. So it's not like they got a little bit. They didn't get anything. 
Why? Because it's too high for the vessel of the student, the vessels of the students to uh, to contain. So this is this is the, one of the meanings, or this is this is a, an example, or, or this is an analogy of the uh, of, of the makifim energy, of the makifim light. Makifim light means a light that's so powerful that it transcends. It absolutely transcends the ability of the recipient to to receive it in a straightforward way. What does this mean in a personal way? In a personal way, it's, it's referring to the essence that is typically not contained in rationale. We talk many times about the essence, your your essential, the essential gifts that you have, the love that you have, the the the, the values that you have, the, the essential stuff. It's, it's stuff that's so much deeper than characterization and rationalization. It's something so much deeper than that. It's called makifim. It's the things that are so much deeper that it encompasses, in a sense, encompassing not that it's not real or not relevant or not, not inside you, but encompassing the sense that it's bigger than your mind can process or your heart can process. It's too big. When it comes to Sukkot, you also have this idea. So not only does this exist in a personal way, but it does also exist in a, in a thematic way in the holiday. What is Sukkot? Sukkot is the holiday that we celebrate God's love for us that's unconditional. Remember we spoke about this in the past? What is Sukkot? In fact, what does the basic halachic uh, require? What is the basic legal requirement of the Sukkot? How many, how many walls? Who remembers? Three. But what is it? It's two and? Two and a little bit. Two and a tefach. Two and a hand. Two and a hand, uh, hand breath. Whatever it is. Length of a hand. What does that mean? According to the Ariza, according to Kabbalah, you have, it's like the arm, you have one, two, and a third. What is this? This is the part that we use for the hug. So what is the sukkah? If not, it's a divine embrace. Remember we spoke about this, uh, we spoke about it a few times. The sukkah is the divine embrace. What's the context in the high holiday season? So you have Rosh Hashanah, you have Yom Kippur, you have the high holidays. And we, you got to show up, and you got to be serious, and you got to pray, and you got to repent, and you got to be sorry, and you got to be remorseful, you got to ask for forgiveness, you got to do all of these things, right? And it's like, oh, because God is judging, and it's a whole day of judgment, it's a whole oh, the chauffeur, and you don't dip your apples in your honey, it's a whole situation. <laughs> it's like a very, it's like there's a lot of protocol to it. Post protocol, God says, by the way, by the by, FYI, I love you anyway. I love you unconditionally. That's what a hug is. A hug, as we explained many times before, a hug, the point of contact of the hug is, which part of the body? The back. The part that I embrace, now of course I bring the person close to me, to the front, but the point of contact is actually the back. The back is not where the qualities of a person are manifest. The back, you look at a person's back, you don't see their face, you don't see their features, you don't see their, you know, it says, Chachmas Adam of the wisdom of a person, illuminates their face. You can tell somebody's wisdom. You can tell when somebody has the mood of somebody. You can tell. You can tell what's going up, what's going on over here and over here based on looking at their face. When you look at the back, their, their back and the back of their head, you can't see anything. What do you see? You see a back. It's formless. Featureless. It's precisely the back that is hugged. And a hug represents unconditional love. Because it's a love that's not based on features, it's not based on qualities, that's not based on accomplishments, it's not based on what have you done for me lately. It's a love that's based on essence, it's an essential love. 
It's the difference between when I'm stuck in a place of relationships, loving those that are close to me because versus loving from the core place of who I am and that core love. What's the difference? When I love from a place of because, so now it's limited. Because, well then I have other becauses, there's also other things that are priorities. I love you because, you know, you're this, that, and the other. But, I also have all these other things that I need to do. And therefore, once we exist in the world of rationale, of, of reasoning, so now I need to weigh what's more important uh, for right now. I can, I can already make adjustments to, to, I can already make compromises on these relationships. When I live from a place that's beyond because, when I live from a place of essence, I can no longer compromise the relationships. I can no longer rationalize and say, well, I, let me, I'll get back to you in a minute. There's no getting back in a minute. It's 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 like God and Moses. I mean, you cannot you cannot see my face and live. You, I'll pass before you to see my back. Right, right. So in a sense, so are you saying in a sense that's deeper? Even perhaps, perhaps right. That's a great idea. Perhaps it's even a deeper a, a deeper connection. It's like if you want to, you know what the commentators explain that what Moses wanted, what Moshe wanted was to answer God to answer the question of why bad things happen. Why the, why the suffering? Why the bad things happen? And God says, maybe you can't look at my face and live. In other words, maybe you can't, you can't see stuff head on. But maybe, maybe it's even more profound. Maybe it's that, it's that to try to reason and rationalize it is to limit the experience. And to try to put it into a box, to try to, to try to limit it to something that I can understand, is not really, I don't use the word accepting, but it's not really, it's not engaging it in on the deepest of levels, as Nina said. So, the point is that Sukkot represents the love that God has for us, that's deeper than performance, deeper than Rationale deeper than logic. It's not like okay, well, you prayed, you said that many prayers, and you you know you fasted that long, and you did this and that, and you had dipped how many pieces of apple and honey? Okay, okay. So therefore, you're going to get this and that and the other. Sukkot is God's unconditional love for us. That is, and that's what's revealed. The energy is revealed, and so we go into a sukkah. A sukkah is all embracing. The sukkah is all encompassing. The sukkah takes us in. As the Hasidic masters would say, it takes us in with our muddy boots. You go into the sukkah as you are. You walk into the sukkah, you know, especially back in Russia or wherever it was, you walk in with your muddy boots, with your galoshes. You walk in as you are. It's not like you walk into synagogue and you have to decorum and you have to look a certain way. A sukkah, you walk in as you are. It's God embracing you because of you as you are with all of the all of the intricacies and all of the flaws and all of the virtues and the whole, the whole package together it's the hug that embraces us unconditionally why because it actually embraces it's god actually embracing the deepest part of who we are that is pure and virtuous and and absolutely connected with him on an essential level no matter, no matter what boots we're wearing, no matter what hat we're wearing, no matter what coat we're wearing, no matter what we've done yesterday, no matter what we're going to do tomorrow, it's God absolutely embracing us, the core of who we are. In turn, it evokes within us the notion of, of embracing God in the same way. Notwithstanding all of the complaints that we have against God, 
all the challenges of God, how did you let this happen, how did you let that happen, what happened here, what happened there, etc. We embrace God from a pure place. That embrace, that hug, is from, is from essence to essence in a sense. So now we understand why Sukkot is a holiday of eight. Why? Because it's a holiday in which the essence, the absolutely essential connection, is revealed. From God to us, and from us to God. Continue, and here he gets to the kicker. And on the eighth day of Sukkot, the Makitham are elicited and absorbed internally as well, which is similar to the service of self-sacrifice of Hanukkah, which affects, as mentioned above, and permeates all the faculties of the soul. It's one thing to know that God loves you. The question is, are you living with that? You can know it just like you can get in touch with the core of yourself and know it intellectually, but you're not actually living from that place. You can know that you love your kids unconditionally, or you can actually be in that space of, of, of living like that. You can know that God loves you unconditionally, or you can actually feel that and allow it to be with you. What's the difference? The first seven days of Sukkot and the eighth day of Sukkot. What's the eighth day of Sukkot? What's it known as? Shemini Atzeret and... Simcha Torah. What's Simcha Torah? In the diaspora, we stretch out over two days. One Shemini Atzeret, one Simcha Torah. But in Israel, the eighth day of Sukkot is both. Shemini Atzeret, which means the eighth day of the gathering together. And, 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 and uh, Simcha Torah. We dance with the Torah. What does, it mean we da- what does it mean to dance? As the mystics said, I say many times in many places, what does it mean to dance? It means... What is dancing? Where, how, what do you use to dance? But what specifically? What's the focus of the dance? Now, forget the Torah for a second. I mean, we're gonna, don't forget the Torah for a second. <laughs> Wait, don't take the rabbi out of context. But your feet. What? Da- what actually is the dancing? What's the po- What? Where? Where does the dance happen with your feet? What's the feet? The furthest part from the head. It's the lowest part of the body. It's your heel. It's the lowest part. It's the part that goes into the muddy boots. It's one thing to know that God loves you unconditionally. But what happens when you feel it? What happens when you live with it? You know what it causes? It causes you to dance. To dance like you've never danced before. To dance not locked in here. Wait, let me do a little kazatska and a little this. Wait, what were the steps again? Not to dance from here. But to dance with there, with your feet. Why? Because you're dancing from the deepest place of, of who you are, where you are. Yeah. I guess, yeah. Because you, you definitely want one that folds in half. Yeah. Yeah. So, you're with me so far on this, and the dancing. Come, so the whole Sukkot holiday is all about God embracing you. For seven days, we work on understanding it. God loves me. God loves me unconditionally. It doesn't matter. Yes, not with, I can come in with my boots and God still loves me. He loves me like a parent, loves a child, etc. Wonderful. Comes the eighth day. And what is the eighth day of Sukkot? It's the day that that becomes real. It becomes realized. And how do we express it? We express that, that sense of acceptance, if you will. God accepts us, who we are, as we are, unconditionally and essentially. We express that by dancing. What is dancing? It's the same idea. Dancing is, it's, dancing is not a head experience. Dancing is not, I'm using my head. You know when you're stuck in your head and you're dancing? You're not actually dancing. 
You know that? If you're at a wedding and everyone's dancing and you're stuck in your head, you're thinking, wait, how do I look? And is the photographer here? And am I going to end up on the video in the final cut? And oh, shoot, I should have worn the red instead of the black, or the black instead of the red, or the gray, whatever it is. And you're, you're overthinking it. And as we know, when you're overthinking it, you're no longer in the moment. That's the way it works. When you overthink it, you're not in the moment, and you're not in the experience. So what is the joy of Sukkot? It's understanding that it's, it's feeling on the deepest of levels that God is embracing you. And therefore, it moves your feet. That's why on Simchat Torah, we don't celebrate the Torah by opening it up and studying it. Yes, we read the Torah. We read its conclusion, the last Torah portion. We read the opening Torah portion. We go at the end and we immediately we finish the Torah reading at the final, the last chapter in the five books of Moses and we begin again from Genesis, from Bereshit, from in the beginning God created heaven and earth. We complete the cycle and we start again. True. We open it up. But the dancing happens with the Torah closed. And the message is, God doesn't only love you based on how much you've studied, based on how much you've accomplished, based on how much you know, based on how smart you are, how accomplished you are. It's not about that. God loves you unconditionally. And when you feel that, when you know that, when you're in touch with that, when you're living from that place, you can't help but dance. And here we have again the same point. What is the truest joy? Not when, you're, when, when, when you have something essential, but it's stuck somewhere, but when it, you resolve the tension, it's able to come all the way through, all the way through, you feel it. To your very heel, you feel that love, that's when there's joy, and that is what the dancing is about. Hope that makes sense. That's the eighth day of Sukkot. And here, he, and this is the paragraph that he really encapsulates this. Third paragraph on the page, this is why. This is why both of them, Sukkot and Hanukkah, consist of eight days. Because the number eight is comprised of one and seven, meaning the one which transcends the Shalshalim is drawn into the seven of the Shalshalim. And here's the first time in this discourse that we've explained the true depth of the number eight. Until now we've said that eight is deeper than seven. Eight is one beyond seven. Here he says, you know what eight really is? It's the one going into the seven. It's the oneness, it's that yechida, it's that quintessence, it's that singularity, that, that core, oneness, indivisible oneness, that's not so far, so deep, that you don't even know it's there. It's in the seven, it's in four. That's how you're living on a day-to-day. That one is now in your seven, it's in, it's in the hishtalshot, it's in your mind, it's in your heart, it's in your feet, it's in your hands. That's how you're living, you're living with the one. That's the true idea of eight. The true idea of eight is not knowing that you have a core that's connected with God, knowing that God loves you, knowing that you love your family, knowing that you love God. That's not, that's not what eight is. It's not knowing that you have that. But it's living that. It's living it. It's expressing it. It's taking that one and moving it into the seven. That's what eight really is. It's the Aleph going into the Zion. It's the one going into the seven. I mentioned previously in a previous class, very parenthetically, that one of the few, few, there are several, but one of the places where the Torah alludes to the coming of Mashiach, the Messianic era. Now the books of the prophets are replete with the discussion about the future time. But in the five books of Moses, one of the places where it's actually alluded to, there are other places where it's a little bit clear, the prophecies of Balaam, but one place where it's alluded to is the song at the sea. The Jews were crossing the sea and the Egyptians were chasing them and the, the, wall, the, the, 
the sea split like a wall on two sides, and then it coll- and the Jews went through, and it collapsed, and the Egyptians and they were drowned, and the uh, the experience of Egypt was now officially over. The Torah says after that happened, Oz Yashir Moshe. Then Moses began to sing, "Song of the Sea." And in the Torah, it's written in, in, a, in a very interesting way. It's written like a poem. It's not typically the Torah is written in columns, but this has like different stanzas. It's written like a like a poem, like poetry, like a song. We sing it. We we read it in, in, in a different tune. It's the song of the sea. The first word is Oz. Oz means then. Yashir means will sing Moshe. Then Moses will sing. And the question is, wait, wait. I thought we we're saying that Moses did sing. What does it mean Moses will sing? Yashir will sing? So our sages say, every from the Talmud on, from the Mishnah Talmud on, that what is this referring to? This is referring to not only the song that they did sing at the sea, but the song, the future song, the song of Mashiach, the song of, 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 of the future time, of the better time, that we're all waiting for. What's the first word of the song? Uz. What is Uz? Aleph and Zion. The one and the seven. What is Mashiach? Mashiach is again the essence, the one, being real, being revealed, being what we live with. Until before the pre-Messianic era, we know about God, we read about God, we theoretically live with God, but it's, it's a little abstract. God is still a little bit, a little bit out there. What is, what is living with Mashiach? What does it mean to live Mashiach with, with, with Mashiach? It means that the Aleph is in the Zion. It means that the One is in the Seven. It means that God permeates everything. The essence of our soul permeates who we are. God's love for us permeates our life. And God's truth permeates the entire world around us. It's all connected. All these eight themes are connected. That's why we said the harp of Mashiach has eight strings. The harp in the future time, in the temple times at seven, in the future time I'll have eight. Again, the one and the seven. Same idea. And again, the point of today, since we're talking about Sukkot and, and connecting the two, is that this process of expre- living with the one in the seven is really the process of removing the obstacles, of resolving the tension. Because otherwise, the one is isolated. The one is locked away. And my seven is different than my one. My one is pure. But my seven, the way I live, is disconnected. What is truly living with your core? What does authentic living mean? That your one and seven are the same. It's flowing straight through. And that is the greatest resolution of tension. That brings the greatest joy. And that's why we dance in Sukkot. And that's why Hanukkah, frankly, is a happy holiday. Not just because of the time of year it is. All right. uh, Transformation. David, please continue. And just as the Hanukkah lamps affect the feet of the Tamudai in two ways, at first destroying and nullifying them, and afterward causing that they too should be transformed to holiness, a similar pattern occurs with the offering of the 70 bulls of Sukkot, which corresponds to the 70 nations of the world. At first, the offering causes that the nations progressively weaken, and afterward, it causes that even they assist Israel. So to explain, wait, wait, before you turn the page, we've got we to gotta focus on this, because this is, like, what is he saying here? So Hanukkah, we explained that you light the menorah at the end of chapter 7. We explained that you light the menorah, you kindle the Hanukkah, from nightfall until the feet of the Tamadai cease. We explained that what, who are the Tamadai? Tamadai is, is the same letters as Moredes, Moredet, which means rebelling, rebelling. So who are the Tamadai? The rebellious, uh, those that are rebe- the, those, the rebels. 
Who are the rebels? So we explain, it's the inner rebel. It's the inner rebel. Not the, not the good inner rebel. That's like I'm going to rail against society and do the good, the good thing anyway. But the negative, what does it mean? It means that deep inside we have that core of goodness. But a little bit more external, but still deep, in, not as deep inside, but still inside. We have parts of us that say, let's be lazy, let's, let's, uh, let's react in an unhealthy way, let's say something not nice, let's do something mean. We have, right, let's get, let's get jealous, let's get angry, let's, all of the negative stuff. All that's inside it, right? We have different reactions. All that, all that inside stuff. So what's the problem? The problem is that the, the one, the inside, is not affecting, the, the deepest core of us is not affecting the other stuff, the negative stuff that's inside. To the point that our expression and thought, speech, and action might also be negative. So we said that when you're really living with your core, when you really access, not when you know that you have the one, but when you're really living with the one, what happens is that the moredet, the, the, that, the opposition, dissolves. Number one, it goes away. It ceases to be a, an obstacle. Again, using the example, we use the, using the example of the tension that exists, let's say, between spouses. So there's a tension that exists between spouses, and then God forbid one spouse gets ill. And so suddenly, in that moment, suddenly, now, there's no more tension. Because I, because the, the spouse says, oh my gosh, I really love, my, I really love the other. It, yeah, we had this petty disagreement, that petty disagreement, but overarching, the, 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 over, the, the deeper sentiment is pure love for the other. And that's what brings it out. Sometimes the challenge is what brings it out. When it brings it out, what happens to the issues? The issues might dissolve, they might go away. Now, it doesn't mean that they may not come back, as we said last time, when, when, when we access the deeper core because of an external factor. So when the external factor goes away, so the other stuff can come back. That's the way it works, because you, we didn't earn it ourselves, we didn't get there on our own. But, right, we talked about this last week? But, when, but while it's still activated... All of the, the disagreements, yeah, but you said this and I said that and you didn't do this and I did that, all that other stuff, when you reach that deeper place, all that stuff is pushed way to the side. It dissolves. We call it destroying and nullifying the, the opposition, the tamradai. The, 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 the challenges go away. A, a deeper way of dealing with the challenge is that not only does it go away, but it actually becomes transformed. And the example that we use is healthy eating. So if I, if I tell myself, if a, if a doctor tells me I have to change, radically change the way I'm eating because of health issues, so number one, the cha- maybe some challenges that I felt you know, in eating a certain way, maybe they'll go away. But maybe they'll even be transformed. That energy can be transformed to the new way of eating. What does that mean? It means that the same passion and, and, and excitement that I had for eating the unhealthy stuff, I'll now have in the opposite way not to eat the unhealthy stuff. The same passion that I had, well, this tastes good, this is good for me to eat the unhealthy stuff is, this is good for me not to eat this stuff. So I, the energy actually becomes, not only does the negative fall away, but it actually becomes transformed to a positive way. So what, what he's saying now here is, the same thing is true with the bulls of Sukkot. The bulls of Sukkot and the Sukkot experience is on a global level. Not only on a personal level, but on a global level. If Judaism represents the idea of monotheism, 
Judaism brought monotheism to the world. And Judaism represents the concept of bringing the one into the seven. Bringing the oneness of God into the world that has its own agenda so, so often. And the 70 nations represent, guess what? Seven times ten. Ten is a, ten is a whole number. So 70 is still connected with the idea of seven. So the purpose of the Jewish people is to bring the oneness of God into the seven, into the seventy. So he says like this, what's the, what, what, what is the, even on a historical level, what is the process? Number one, you got to weaken idolatry, paganism. You got to weaken the other nations. What does it mean to weaken the other nations? You got to weaken that, the, 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 the anti-monotheistic movements. You got to weaken that stuff. The Jewish mission is, right, to bring a oneness of God into the world, to be a light into the nations, etc. So it means, so anything that stands in opposition, so hopefully it's progressively weakening. And then there's the concept of transformation. And by the way, we see this historically. Abraham had a fight. It was a big fight to bring, to bring what we would call Jewish values into the world. And then what happened? Other nations began adopting Jewish values. And our country, many have argued, the, the principles of our country, the founding fathers, were very well steeped, well versed in the Old Testament, so to speak, in, in the Torah. And the values of, you know, all men being created equal and, and you know, divine, divine rights, so to speak, where does that come from if not, if not the Torah? If not what we believe is a God, a one God that's present amongst the seven? Jerusalem, 100%. We're going to have a class this week. about The, the, the first shuls in America, also in Mikveh Yisrael, Sharers Yisrael, you had synagogues named after the concept of bringing God into the world, the Messianic idea. You had so many themes that, that surrounded the, the founding of our country. Is, anyway, the concept, the idea is that at first there is this this idea of, of when you're introducing a new concept, so there's going to be some resistance. Also inside, there's resistance. But then hopefully, it takes root and there becomes, and now there's a transformation. What's the transformation on a global level? So, or what are these two stages on a global level? Which again, just to state it again. Initially, there's, there's, some, there's resistance. Monotheism, God, Abraham was thrown into a furnace for his beliefs. Like, what are you talking about? God doesn't want us to kill people and not know human sacrifices. These were foreign notions. Paganism, idolatry, this is how the world, this is how the world uh, was working. So on the first, first step is to weaken, weaken the opposition, to kind of you know, get, get everything cooled down a little bit. And then the transformation begins. What's the transformation? Transformation is others recognizing, the world recognizing the beauty of the values of Torah, the beauty of the values, the Torah, it says in Deuteronomy, the Torah is your wisdom and your understanding in the eyes of the nations. And we see how Jewish values, all you have to do is read a book called like, like The Gift of the Jews to realize the gift of, of what the Jewish people have brought into the world. And so what's really the point? It's not really about Jewish or not Jewish. What it really is, the concept of the oneness of God becoming real amongst the diversity of the world, amongst the seven. That's really what it's about. The concept of all men being created equal is that there's oneness within the diversity. Because otherwise, there's only... In other words, we believe that a one, the one God created 
many different things. But all, every, every, all of the multiplicity, all the diversity of creation reflects the oneness of God. And therefore, everything must be respected and, taken and, and treated with care and love. Right? As opposed to other theories that said, well, there's only one way to go. There's only one true religion. There's only one way to go. There's only one ticket to heaven. There's only one, 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 one. Down here... That does, that's not, it's, it's a, it comes from a different place, it comes from a different initial belief in a sense. See, Judaism believes very strongly that the one God creates diversity and therefore diversity is a reflection of the oneness. As opposed to a oneness down here and a diversity up there, so to speak. Anyway, so that's, so that's, that's really what, what this is all about. And that's what Sukkot is. What is Sukkot? Sukkot is about the same thing like Hanukkah. Hanukkah is within yourself, bringing the one into the seven. Sukkot is on a global level, bringing that one, that love that God has for you, that you feel that love for you, but also introducing that to the world at large, so that others also see that, that God not only loves you, but loves them. That decreases the hostility toward, not only Judaism, but toward God in a sense, toward others, and brings about a transformation of the world, and that's really what Mashiach is about. That's the Messianic era. What is Messianic? If not, they'll turn their swords into plowshares. And no nation will rise up against the other nation. La Yisa Goy El Goy Cherev. One nation won't. La Yisa Goy El Goy Cherev. One nation won't raise against the other nation a sword. Vila Yil Madu Ayd Muhammad. They'll no longer teach war. Why? Because the world will be filled with the knowledge of God, the presence of God, like the ocean waters cover the ocean bed. Just like the waters of the ocean absolutely cover the, the, the floor of the ocean, so too the world will be so filled with God's presence and God's oneness, where's the hostility going to come from? Hostility only comes from a place of, I've got it right, you've got it wrong. There's only one way to do things. Judaism says the oneness is not here. The oneness is there. The one God created diversity. And so the sacrifices on Sukkot represented the diversity of the 70 nations. Because if you add up 14, 13, 12, 11, 10, 9, and 8, you get 70. 70 bulls of Sukkot represented the 70 nations. and what, what, So what does a Jewish offering have to do with the 70 nations? It's again bringing one into the seven. Seven times ten. Seven, ten is a, you know, the ten powers. Well, how are we going to understand that? But it's bringing one into diversity. But again, in the process, there's a learning curve. At first, it's going to be a little bit difficult. It's going to be a little bit... And then there's going to be transformation. That's how it happens inside of us. That's how, that's how all change happens. At first, there are, there's the old guard that wants to resist the change. It says, whoa, I don't like what you're doing with this. And then there's the transformation that's born. Does it make sense? Hanukkah represents it on a personal level. And Sukkot represents it on a, on a, on a national and global level. So there's there the, the lessening of, um, the, the, with the individual, there's a reducing the amount of um, resistance, and then so the transformation uh, Exactly. That's why Shammai says, we didn't, we, he doesn't get to this specifically in here, but that's why Shammai says, you light the candles descending. Mm-hmm. 
Why? Because when you're trying to weaken opposition, the opposition is, let's say, 100%. Now you weaken it, now it's only 90%. And it's only 80%. You only need less and less, because the opposition gets weaker and weaker, you only need less firepower, so to speak, as everything weakens. Hillel says, Hillel takes a different approach, he says, don't focus on the weakening, Focus on, you're, you're creating light. Don't focus on the effect necessarily and how, how the process is rolling out, even though that is how the process rolls. But don't try to, don't let, let that not be your focus. Your focus should just be on positivity and always adding more and more. And what will happen is, what will happen will happen. Don't focus on, on, on that process, even though in Sukkot clearly we do focus on that process. But maybe it's, when it comes to, I don't know. I, the question is, why doesn't it fully match up? But he doesn't fully answer all, all the questions. So maybe there's still a little tension here that we can... It's good, it's good to have some tension. Continue. Turn to page 60. As I say to say, if the nations of the world would know how beneficial the Beit HaMikdash is for them, they would surround it with Kastriot. Yeah. In order to go... Now, what are Kastriot? So look at 120. Either fortresses or army blockades. The Talmud says, the nations of the world, the Babylonians in their time, the Romans in their time, destroyed the temple. The Talmud says, if they only knew how beneficial the temple was, not to the Jewish people, to everybody in the world, they would have protected it with their own armies, protected it with their armies, instead of sending their armies to destroy it. But they didn't know. What's the message? How's it beneficial? You can understand that I mean, you can understand on a mystical, spiritual level that it's some sort of magic, whatever. On a more practical level, the idea that the base Hamikdash represents, that Judaism represents, which is monotheism, which is a, a oneness of God and a diversity of, of, of creation, a diversity of people, and a diversity of past and connecting with God, that is a message that is beneficial for all people and uplifting for all people. And to therefore try to destroy that and to say, no, it has to be our way, that's not good for anybody. All that does is continue to perpetuate war and perpetuate animosity and perpetuate suffering, etc. You with me? Yeah. Continue. After causing the nations to experience a transformation, the nations become the vehicle for an increase in protection, even for holy matters, the guarding of the Beit Hamikdash. It's really not after. I'm not sure how I let that slip. It's not after. <laughs> it's not after it's, it's through through causing the tra- what is the idea of the trans- we're saying there's two levels there's one is lessening and weakening of the opposition that's stage one and stage two is a transformation so he says what is the transformation in the, in the case of the base of the temple the transformation is that the nations protect the, pr- become a vehicle for protection of the, of the, of the guarding the Beit HaMikdash guarding the Holy Temple in other words, the opposition is no longer opposing, not only no longer opposing, but, but they're the first ones helping. In other words, we're all working together on this. Alright, continue. And again, we, here we have again verses from the, the, the uh, prophets. Where is this from? Zephaniah. Zephaniah. I don't know how you pronounce it. Zephaniah says some verses here, and we're going to explain it along these lines. Continue. Uh, this is similar to what will occur in the future. Firstly, I will then transform the nations to serve him as one, and then foreigners will rise and shepherd your flocks. Look at this, look at this. Number one, it's not really two stages. The firstly, again, I'm not sure what happened over here. It's not firstly, and then. It's, it's the same stage. The first stage was a weakening. The second stage was a transformation. All of this is within stage two already. 
We're not talking about stage one. In the future time, there will already be the transformation. But what is the transformation? The nations will be transformed to serve Him as one. What does it mean to serve Him as one? Every nation with their own individuality and their own... It says when Mashiach comes, not everyone's going to be... We don't believe that everyone's going to be Jewish. You'll still have different religions, still have different peoples. But yet everyone with their diversity will serve God as one. It's an incredibly different concept of Mashiach. All nations will be transformed to serve not, not to make sure you're like me, but to make sure we're all serving one God. And that one is now within the seven, within the seventy. And then, foreigners will rise and shepherd your flocks. What does that mean? That means well, everyone will recognize your flocks, or your Jewish flocks. What does that mean? So everyone's going to be our shepherds? First of all, when was the, la- when was the last time you were I owned flocks? <laughs> That's one question. Second of all, what does it mean? We understand that all the verses that, the verses that talk about the Messianic era are, have many layers of allegory. What does it mean? What it means is your values... The things that you were shepherding throughout the, throughout the exile. The values, the truths that you told. Even the nations will be on board. And they'll also protect those values. The values of life. Do you know that... What, I mentioned this in Wednesday night's Torah studies class. I know we're running, we're running over time, but we're almost... We're, we're, the finish line is, is at hand. It, it's the Romans used to make fun of the Jews that the Jews don't kill infants that are born with, uh, with quote-unquote issues. And so they made fun of the Jews for not killing. Oh, we have infanticide. That makes sense. You Jews, you're crazy. You believe in absolute life. We see where the world has come to today. Think in most, hopefully in most places. It's a good thing. It's a good transformation. Your flocks will be shepherded. Your values will be shepherded by others. They will care for your values as their own because they will be universal values. This is what Mashiach is. Continue. Um, and this is similar to the offering of the 70 bulls, which corresponds to and transforms the 70 nations, so much so that through and because of the nations an offering is added to the Jewish people on the eighth day of Sukkot in the Beit HaMikdash. For seven days the offerings were the totaling the number 70 for the nations. On the eighth day we brought one, there was one bull offered representing the Jewish people. What that represents is, it's, he's a little bit unclear as to what, it, there's a few ways that I understand it, that I could understand it. One way that I understand it is that after the transformation, then there's oneness. There's no longer 70 nations. There's only one. Because the oneness below represents the oneness above. Not that there's no, again, not that there's no 70 nations. There is 70 nations. But all 70 nations serving one God with the same values and the truth and no war and no fighting and no animosity. No, like, you have to be like me or else you're not going to have a relation with God. All of that is cut out of the vernacular, cut out of the conversation. And then you're left with not really 70, even though you have 70, you're not really left with 70. You're left with one. By the way, in case anybody's wondering, where does the number 70 come from? So it says originally God divided the world into 70 primary nations and nationalities and languages. This happened in the times post-flood, post-Noah, I know Noah is this movie that's coming out, whatever, but post-Noah's flood, there was the generation of the Tower of Babylon. Babylon. And they built a tower to try to reach God, and God said they were, they were unified for a cause, but it was kind of to fight against God. 
And so therefore God says, I'm going to split you guys up and create different languages. Until then, everyone spoke one language and they were all together. God said, we're going to create diversity here. And according to our tradition, there's an original in 70 nations, nationalities, and languages that emerges at that time period. So So all nations today derive from 70 primary nations. Yeah, that excludes. Yeah, Ju- yeah, Judaism would be yeah, seventy nations of the world, and then yeah. and then the Jewish people. So there would be the seventy, and then the, and then the one exactly. Now, another thing to mention: this is just a, a Purim note. That is um, that the members of the Sanhedrin of the High Jewish Court had to be fluent in all seventy languages of the world, and that's how Mordechai caught the plot. You know, in the story, one of the important details is that there was a plot. Big Son and Sarish, two of the king's uh, guards, were plotting to kill, to assassinate the king. Early on in the story, Mordechai hears the plot, reports it to Esther, who reports it to the king, tells the king that Mordechai told me, it's written in the Chronicles. Later on, when the king can't sleep, he opens up the Chronicles. Oh, Mordechai saved my life. We never repaid him. We have to parade him through the streets. Haman, you should parade him. Anyway, the whole story changes at that moment. And it's all part of it is due because uh, Mordechai catches the plot, tells Esther, and Esther says, not only is there a plot, but Mordechai, the Jew, told me that there's a plot. Um, okay, so what's the point? How did he, the, their sages ask in the Talmud, how did he know the plot? They spoke in the language of Tarshish, which is a very obscure language. So they thought they would be safe. They saw Mordechai there, but they thought he wouldn't understand it. They didn't, they didn't, rec- they didn't realize that he was a member of the Sanhedrin, the high Jewish court. Remember, he lived, this was between the first and second temples, but he was alive during the first temple period. He wasn't born between the, the two temples. This is only like 40 years after the temple was destroyed. So he was part of the high Jewish court in the first temple era. And he knew all 70 languages, including Tarshish. And that's how he, uh, he busted up the plot. The rest is history. Anyway, alright, thank you all for coming. Sorry for going way late. Um,